That was a, a purposeful, dramatic pause there. <laughs> if you're visiting, thank you for still being here. My name is Peter. Uh, I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Today, we're going to take a brief break from our Romans series. We're going to uh, do a brief sermon series called, And He Answered Me. We're going to be talking about prayer the next few weeks, examining how a few famous prayers in the Bible compel us to be a people that prays. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Jonah today. The book of Jonah, it's after Amos and Obadiah, kind of towards the, you know, two-thirds of the way through the book. We're going to read Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again at your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is imagery of hell or Sheol whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought, me, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon dry land. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. We ask that you would add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that goes beyond our thoughts, feelings, presumptions, ideas, even our best actions. Help us. Lord, I've never never had a thought or even a feeling anywhere near the idea of, man, I just prayed way too much. It's never been that way. Lord, it's It's always been surprising the amount of peace and freedom and exhilaration when I actually pray that I'm inclined to think, man, I should do this more and do everything else less. Lord, so help us. Prayer is wonderful because you are wonderful. And Lord, we so often choose lesser things in our busyness. And I'm asking for you to do a supernatural work. If you can raise Jesus, your son, Father, from the dead, and you can raise us up and draw us to to love you, then you can help us today 
to pray to you more regularly, more powerfully. Help us. Amen. Before we dig deeper into Jonah chapter 2, I want to underline some of the vision for why we're taking a break and at this point of the year, talking about prayer from the Bible. Jesus knows that we need to pray, like we should pray. But he doesn't simply expect that prayer is a thing we do, but even more that it's a habit we make of praying. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you pray, and then he begins to instruct us. See, there's this presumption at the foundation of how he's instructing us that we are praying by habit. It's not a, if you pray, here's a good idea for how to pray. He says, when you pray. I think Jesus considered habits, like prayer, to be more powerful and formative in our lives than even our best isolated actions or our best thoughts or words. Habits like praying. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, he gives us this habitual instruction about prayer that's transformative. It transforms how we think about God, how we, how we go before him, and therefore how we live before him. Another habit that he says, he says, as often as you eat this bread, remember what I've done. And drink this cup, remember what I've done. See, Jesus gives us the gospel by living the life we should have lived and dying for our sin and rising from the dead. And he leaves us not just with the thought of that, but with the habit to taste and see that he is good. And one of these ways we can taste and see that he is good is the sanctified habit of prayer. James 5 says, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed or strengthened. Habits like prayer are deeply formative. One of my mentors, Rice Brooks, he said, you do not fight thoughts with thoughts. You fight thoughts with words. And I'll add to that, words confessed to God and prayed aloud, often with other people, by faith and by faithful habit. The habit of praying to a faithful God that hears us is one of the most vital lifelines that we routinely tend to overlook. It's a lifeline. First Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, we could say routinely, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. I will hear and I will respond with forgiveness, with healing. That's a lot. What does that say about the nature of the God to whom we have access to pray or do something else. It says something about God that's amazing. I, I'm convinced that the more we consider the true nature of God, the more inclined to pray we are. And the more that we pray, the more we encounter the true nature of God. And it can be and will be, and I prophesy over myself and over you, that prayer will be a beautiful, growing cycle like that. We encounter the nature of God, which compels us to pray more and encounter Him more, and then we just get stronger and take over the world and all that stuff. We 
pray. This month, we want to reinforce the value of praying as a people. And that's why we're going through certain prayers in the Bible and seeing what that means for us, for our prayer, for our relationship with God as a people. So getting back to Jonah chapter 2. Today, you'll see how Jonah's prayer, number one, reflected the heart of God. Number two, contrasted the heart of Israel. So this prayer that Jonah prays shows the heart of God and at the same time shows how Israel and Jonah, namely, were not reflecting the heart of God. So you'll see, too, how examining this will help us to shed light on where our heart is, God willing, and where our habits and actions are, and see how God can help us along. Amen? So, number one, how Jonah's prayer reflected the heart of God. Reading through the whole book of Jonah, and especially the things that we see in chapter 2, helps us to see that God is uncomfortably sovereign. He's in control of so much more than we often consider. He's sovereign. Now, we just spent a month in the eighth chapter of Romans, and we've seen how God is sovereign in redeeming people. It's overwhelming how in control he really is. He's sovereign, and thus he cares deeply for all people. The world is in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. The whole wide world, right? Is that how it goes? I I didn't brush up on that. That was off the cuff. You're welcome that I didn't sing it. God is sovereign. He has the whole world in his hands. He cares deeply, jealously, passionately for all people. And therefore, you can connect to God wherever you are, wherever, however you're feeling. God loves you just the way you are, so much so that he's not willing for you to stay where you are. But wherever you are, you can pray to him. If you feel full of faith to pray to him, then pray. If you feel totally anxious and distressed, you can pray because he's still not. He's still God. That's why I love verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my faith. No, no, no. It says, out of my distress. And he answered me. It should give us overwhelming confidence that God would answer, answer our prayers in the worst of times. Even when we're running from him, as we'll see that Jonah was doing. God is sovereign. He cares deeply for all people, like the Assyrian people that he had called Jonah to preach to. He cared for these people of Nineveh, the capital of Syria. He cared for them. The the very enemies of God, God had a deep care for, which is why he sent Jonah to them. God loves his wicked enemies who murderously, rebelliously oppose him. His love bridges then and now, far beyond our own comforts, are able to take us. So God loves the people to whom he is, he is reaching out to. But what's amazing and astounding about Jonah, the book of Jonah, is God's powerful, overwhelming love for Jonah, who knew better than to rebel against God and run from God in his own self-righteous, racist rebellion, And yet God 
loved Jonah so much anyway. Our sovereign God even cares deeply for, for people who don't yet care at all about him. People who know better, he still steadfastly loves. This should overwhelm us, and it should definitely change and give us perspective and paradigm for what prayer is all about. At what times can we pray, and how should we pray? If you go back and skim chapter 1, God had told Jonah to, to go to Nineveh and preach. It's the capital, as I said, of the Assyrian Empire, who was, at the time, one of the most powerful nations in the world, and Jonah ran in the opposite direction. It's like if God said, hey, go to Los Angeles and preach the gospel to all the, the celebrities and actors in Los Angeles, and you said, okay, I'm going to go to Arkansas. Geographically, we know that that's exactly opposite. That's what Jonah did. He, he, he was told to go to Nineveh, and he got on a ship to Tarshish, which is the other direction. I looked it up on an ancient map. Jonah went the complete other direction, and yet it didn't seem that Jonah's rejection of God dictated God's rejection of Jonah or Nineveh. God was still going to have his way even through Jonah. This is amazing. God's love, his steadfast love, and his sovereign hand over Jonah. So Jonah's in this ship going the opposite direction of the will of God, and God will use the weather for his will. He sends a huge storm. And in this boat, the pagan sailors that Jonah was, was sailing with got somewhat of a word of knowledge. God had kind of revealed to them that there's someone on the boat that's being judged right now because they're rejecting God. So they kind of went through a whole list of all the gods that could be rejected, and they found out it came to Jonah. It was Jonah who was at fault for running from his God, and therefore God, the sovereign God, was judging Jonah. And so Jonah suggested, well, maybe if you just kind of deal with me, kind of throw me out into the sea, then y'all, all y'all will be safe. And that's what they did. And right when they threw him into the water, there was an immediate calm. Remember, the sailors threw Jonah into the water, and then there was this calm. But check out what Jonah says in this next verse. Verse 3, Jonah's praying to God. He says, for you cast me into the deep. Past tense, you casted me, cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. So which is it? Was it the sailors who threw Jonah into the sea, which is what we read in chapter 1, or is it, as Jonah says here in chapter 2, that God did it? And I would go with the second part, that God is the one who used the sailors to perform his will. And what happens next is even most, some of the most amazing parts of God's sovereignty and, and controlling hand over uh, all of creation because things get really crazy here. Fishy, if you will. Jonah is sinking to the bottom. Sorry, I had to. Can't stop being corny. Jonah is sinking to the bottom. And a fish swallows him up. And he's alive in a fish. And he prays what is one of the, arguably one of the greatest recorded prayers from inside the belly of a fish in all of human history. Um, of course, it's probably not a huge argument about that. 
we have to ask the question, was Jonah really alive inside of a fish for three days? Now, I've heard some reasonable explanations about this from godly people that I don't disrespect or disagree with explicitly about how maybe this was speaking allegorically and the fish actually represents something else. And I don't discredit their ideas, but I have to say that I'm most inclined to just believe that this actually happened like this. Uh, One huge reason is Jesus, hundreds of years later, referenced the Jonah story, and he seemed to imply that, like, it actually happened. Anything that Jesus says is real, I've learned especially when you go to the go read your bible read the new testament testament read his words you'll you'll start to see that what jesus says is real it's good for you to just discount anything else that you think is real that he thinks is not i often am disagreeing with myself in order to agree with what's truly real through what jesus says is real so i just think if jesus thought that this thing happened it must have happened and besides if god can raise jesus from the dead, after being dead for three days, then he can, he can keep a man inside of a fish alive for three days. Abrupt application moment for a second. If God can use a fish in a storm and pagan sailors to accomplish his will, then why can't he use your boss or your spouse or the crazy mess that you're in to accomplish his will, and to answer and fulfill his promises in your life. God is faithful. He uses things maybe that we don't expect, but that he has loving power over for what's best for us, even if it doesn't feel good for us. Now, abrupt moment over. Here we see God using this fish to rescue Jonah out of his own judgment, right? But check, it, check out again what Jonah says at the end of verse 6. He says, God, you brought my life up out of the pit. O oh Lord, my God. Remember, it was technically the fish, but Jonah knew about God's power over the elements. That's why in verse 10 we see clearly the Lord spoke to the fish. If you start speaking to a fish, you're crazy. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just being honest. But if God speaks to a fish and the fish listens, it's because he's God. He spoke to the fish. The fish vomited Jonah out on dry land. It's important to know that kind of closer to his destination for Jonah to preach the gospel. And Jonah goes and preaches. God is sovereign over everything, the weather, the fish, the storms. He's the ultimate sovereign over nations His jealous love to run after those who are far off is overwhelming from Genesis to Revelation. And just consider that, how God in his foreknowledge used the whole story with Jonah to prefigure something greater. God used Jonah being in the belly of a fish for three days in many ways so that Jesus could stand before the Sanhedrin, he could stand before all of us in world history and say, As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will I be in the belly of the grave for three days, and I will rise again from the dead. And he did, and there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who bore witness to what happened 
a dead man being very much not dead anymore. And all of them were willing to give their lives for this history. God is sovereign over history. Now, here's another thing that we see. Not only is God sovereign, it's one of the things we see in this prayer, but we see the power of God's love and justice displayed in the words of this prayer. In fact, I would say we see that justice is love. It's not like these two attributes of God, his judgment and justice, are somehow opposed or at odds with one another, like with his love. His judgment and his love are one and the same. God's jealously passionate, deeply compassionate love to rescue Nineveh through the preaching of Jonah here is shown in his harsh warning to Nineveh. So when Jonah eventually stepped into Nineveh, fish, guts, and stank, and all, here's essentially what was his message. Repent or die. Now, we wouldn't be inclined to think, ooh, that's, that's love right there. But I would argue that our mindset disentangling, disconnecting the love and justice of God is really the problem there. There's such a false dichotomy in our contemporary mindset that says that loving a person means that I wouldn't speak of justice or judgment. As if, as if my disposition towards another person is only loving if I display some sort of careless indifference to how their life is being lived. Oh, that's love somehow. You're not smarter than God. We're not smarter than God. God's justice and judgment is his love for his people. I know this in my life. I experienced the love of God at 14 years old through the preaching of a campus ministry in my high school. The first week that I went, I could see no longer are the the false diagnoses of my sin being laid to bear, but a very clear representation of what's wrong with me. And I walked away from that church setting very uncomfortable. I was experiencing the judgment of God. And only in that context could I receive that Jesus took that objective judgment for me so that he could give me new life. There was no difference between God showing me the harshness of reality without him versus the compelling me, the invitation to bring the love with him. His justice is his love. God cares deeply about people And that means that he cares about how people live their life. He cares about whether or not we're lifting up evil or good because he loves. His justice and judgment is his love. A father that is indifferent to the quality of his children's life, how they live, we would rightly call that father neglectful. So God's sovereign judgment on the nations is reflective of his tender mercy and loving kindness for the nations. And here in Jonah's prayer, we see this truth powerfully proclaimed in verse 8. Verse 8, we just need to slow down and read it. Circle it in your Bible. Highlight it with some nice colored pencils. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. 
See, he could have been re- referring to the sailors that, that he had just been with or, or even the, the nation of Assyria who he was going to. But he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I'm guessing that if you went and told your friend tomorrow, hey, you're paying regard to vain idols or some sort of derivative of that message in your own words, I'm guessing they wouldn't initially feel the love of God coming from that judgment. But in so many ways, that's so true. That the reality of vain idols, the, the things that we trade for God that are not God's, lifting those things up is cutting off God's love to us. If we can't ever so severely call out the vain idols in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own nation, in our own culture, even at the risk of discomfort, then we too are forsaking the steadfast love of God. We're being merciless in our attempt to be merciful because there's no difference between God's justice and his love. His grace and his truth cannot be separated. I want to go to some of the other versions of Jonah 2.8. King James, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Or Christian Standard Bible, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love, their faithful love. Or the message paraphrase, those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, walk away from their only true love. So why does God go after Nineveh with such truth and harshness? Because God is so loving. And why does God make me feel uncomfortable with the way I live sometimes? Because God loves me so much more than those false comforts could ever love me. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, he preaches repentance, and just as he fears, they repent of their vain idols, of their God frauds. The harsh judgment was love. They were cutting off the source of God's eternal love for him, and God in his mercy brought the harsh truth of that reality to them. He displayed his love and his forgiveness. And Jonah knew that this was going to happen. His enemies would receive the love of God, and it was hard for him. Now, we need to, I think sometimes we, we, from our cultural perch, we kind of look back on previous generations and judge them from within our understandings. And this is always a problem when we do this to any generation. But especially as I've read, as we've read about Jonah, it's so easy to look at Jonah and be like, man, Jonah's just did not run after God. He didn't love God. God told him to do one thing, and he just, he, he's so hateful to just share the love a little bit with the Assyrians and Nineveh, so it goes the opposite direction. But we need to slow down and consider what the Assyrian people were to the people of Israel. And I think when we do, we'll cut Jonah some slack and maybe feel a little bit more sanctified discomfort in our own setting and say, instead of the energy that we would have said, God, Jonah's a mess, we might just say, God, I'm a mess. I need your help. May your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. I was reading Isaiah this week in the book of Isaiah. 
the Assyrian Rabshakeh, the, one of the leaders that was from Nineveh, was laying a brutal siege to Israel. And reading of this terrorism of the Assyrian people over Jonah's people, over Israel, made me think about uh, a book that I had read earlier about how the Nazis put a siege over the people of Leningrad. It's basically the, the, the same display of hatred and brutality. The plan is to starve the weak and needy in a city in order to force the strong to give up. So basically they'll use innocent victims to terrorize and disempower everyone to gain an upper hand. That's what sieges do. And these were the people, the Assyrians, that God was commanding Jonah to show love to. So we can't deny that this is at least a little bit scandalous. Remember, we're the generation that politically assassinates people if they ever have a tweet that's less than sensitive from their teenage years. I'm not saying that it's not righteous outrage sometimes when we do that. But regardless of the validity of of our outrage, consider that Jonah was tasked with preaching to the Nazis of his generation. And they repented. That makes me feel uncomfortable. I wonder how many people actually preach to legitimate, real Nazis in our few generations here. I have some time to process that thought. I know who I, know who I was. And by God's mercy, triumphing over very real justice, I get to be with Jesus for eternity. We can scoff at Jonah for going in the other direction, but how often do we walk away from opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with people in our daily lives? I mean, if God directed you specifically to start an outreach ministry to white supremacists today, how quickly would you go and obey him? It gives me pause thinking about that to prematurely judge Jonah. God is sovereign. He loves people. He loves people with a sovereign hand, and his justice is his love. So Jonah's prayer reflected this heart of God. And at the same time, it displayed the lack of this very heart in Jonah, in the people of Israel. So number two, how Jonah's prayer contrasted the heart of Israel, even as it was reflecting the heart of God. Israel had been rebelling against God for generations at this time. And listen, even though they, were, they had walked away from God, they had still at the time retained so much of the blessing that had come from the special grace of God in their nation. Let that sink in for a second. Have we retained a special blessing in so many ways, in our nation that's come from a special grace from God that doesn't have to do with our current or even former obedience. That should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable knowing, wow, we're not too different. Israel was left in this weird place, beginning to garner this feeling that they had value 
no longer just in their relationship from God from which their value was derived, but they had some sort of comparative value. Like they were better than the other nations around them because, you know, they had God's law and they were the chosen nation. And so they had fallen into this place of misplaced legalism and what I'll call merciless nationalism. This is how even though Jonah prays this powerful prayer reflecting God's heart, his lifestyle and the nation of Israel were walking in this misplaced legalism and this nationalism. First of all, legalism. You know, they had the law. They had the temple. Jonah mentions the temple in verses 4 and verses 7. Verse 4, it's almost like, I will look again on your temple. And, and I, I know contextually it's like, yeah, like he, God will help him to have another look at the temple. And what the temple of God is really for is not a place to exclude the nations, but to call them forth with power. We even see this in Isaiah 56. Isaiah prophesies, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about how God will return the far-off nations to himself. It says the foreigners will come to God. In verse 7 of Isaiah 56, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God says, this is my temple. He's saying, it's my law. This is my justice. This, is, this does not belong to Israel. It does not belong to any other nation that thinks that it's theirs. The grace of God for us from sea to shining sea does not belong to America. It belongs to God. He says, it's my temple. It's, verse 9, it's my salvation. And Isaiah, or uh, Jonah could rightly say, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not from the law. It's not from the nation of Israel. It's from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. I think it's amazing that this word salvation used here in Jonah is virtually indistinguishable in its Hebrew root from the word Jesus. They're both basically the same word, Yeshua, salvation. We know that salvation is from the Lord in its greatest sense because Jesus came from the Lord. And when all the nations and all the peoples and all the religions have tried to get to God, salvation in its truest sense is so different because it comes to us. Man tries to get to God in our best efforts that fail. But true salvation from the Lord is that God came to us. God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died for not living the life that we should have lived. And he rose again from the dead to bring us new life so that he could bring us his salvation and send us out on his mission. I received this at age 14, as I said, and my prayer is that I would never stop praying that the joy of his salvation would be what drives me more than anything. Israel had lost touch with the heart of God, and they tried to retain the law all while rejecting God. And they also clung to this merciless nationalism. See, God wanted them to be grateful for his distinct grace on their nation, but he didn't want them to lift up their nation as an alternative to God, as an idol. See, loving my nation, where God puts me, that's gratitude. But worshiping my nation is nationalism. 
This is why I think patriotism today is generally okay, because if we can't be grateful for the grace we've received in our nation, flaws and all, then I think we're missing out on some of the joy that God has ordained for us to, to have. Amen? But if our patriotism degenerates into a state of nationalism, a blanket love for everything in our nation above and beyond God, that's not good. And it'll have a merciless effect on other people. I wish I was speaking more hypothetically. All while thinking ourselves on God's side, we can reject him and lift other things that he's given to us above him. I heard of a a church, I won't say what state it's in, but a church this year that on their July 4th service, most of the church was kind of sitting, just kind of sitting and listening to the music at the start of the service, kind of partially singing along with the worship songs and the hymns to Jesus. And then, I'm proud to be an American came on, played by the church band, in the church service, and all of a sudden, the whole congregation stood to their feet, lifted their hands, and this crazy euphoria came over them. Like, oh, we're full of the Spirit. Well, they're full of something. And I look back at some of the things that I've lifted up and called godly in my life, and I start to think, oh, God, help me. This is not good. It's merciless. This week we saw in our nation the merciless effect of misplaced values and fears and violence. And I wish we could, I wish, I wish we could share about this as something in the distant history. Back when we used to be messed up, that's just not the case. All of us, all of us, have misplaced, in one sense or another, the grace of God in our lives and lifted up other things instead. And it has a merciless effect. And we all contribute to it. And when we face tragedies like this, like the shootings, especially the shooting in El Paso that was driven by this white nationalism, the best thing that we can do, I'm not saying the only thing, I'm saying the best thing that we can do is to pray. Pray that God would relieve, he would be near to the brokenhearted, that out of this, that the devil would not have the most glory, but that God would use this pain to draw people to himself and draw us all into repentance. Now, again, I'm not saying that prayer is the only thing we should do. I love Morgan Stevens, uh, what he said about prayer Last week he says, prayer is not a substitute for action, but action is not a substitute for prayer. See, Jonah's prayer showed God's heart, and it also showed this wrong-heartedness of Israel that, as I close, drawing to a close here, there's a few takeaways that seem so amazing to, to me about it that even though this book displays this great lack, you read to chapter 3, he preaches to Nineveh, they repent. (laughs) Unfortunately, chapter 4, Jonah's just throwing a pity party about their repentance. He's sad about it, and then the book abruptly ends. 
But here's what's so great about that. Contextually, that's not the end of Jonah's story. I just saw this for the first time a few years ago because all scholars agree, pretty much all scholars. Do you know who wrote the book of Jonah? This is not that hard. Most of us think the best evidence points to Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. So what that means is that what kind of transformation did Jonah have to, to incur in his life and receive from God if he could be transformed enough to just put all his junk out there, similar to how Peter was so transformed that he, when he got together with John Mark, he could just kind of put all his junk in the gospel account of Peter because he was so transformed that God had given him so much mercy that he was a new man and he could just write all this stuff in there. God had changed Jonah. He had shown him his blind spots in his life. And I wonder how much many of us can say, God, please show me my blind spots. Look, it's so easy to look back on former generations and judge those generations. That's way too easy. Oh, God, how could they have accepted slavery? God, how could they have indignified the value and status of women and called themselves godly conservatives? That's way too easy. Do you know that our grandchildren will probably have their own thoughts about us? How could they so readily disregard the value of unborn life? How could they just incur all sorts of material goods on their lives and call themselves Christians? How could they look back with just live with this robotic dependence on technology? The list goes on. But God had shown Jonah his blind spots, and I think it has to do with God's connection to Jonah in this moment of prayer. Because when you look, it it seems like Jonah is at his best self when he's praying. It reminds me of what we preached about a few weeks ago, Romans 8. God, the Spirit, intercedes with our spirit according to the will of God. So we are at our best self and the way we are designed mostly to be when we are praying. I, I, I feel experientially even that some of my greatest blind spots are revealed when I'm praying with others. I, I also see that my relationship with others often is grown the best, not when I'm in bilateral communication with them, simply talking to other people, but when I'm praying to God with other people. God shows me my blind spots when I'm praying, when I'm worshiping in ways that I can't receive in other ways. John Owen says, a man is his truest self in prayer. He's one of the original church reformers. And so I appeal to you as we get ready for a new school year, be prayerful. Join us not just because we're going to have the best potluck in the history of potlucks. Nobody potlucks like Springs people potluck. Amen. (laughs) Congregation's here. But we're also going to pray together. And we do this by habit. Every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. to 9.30, we pray. It's habitual. It's sanctified. We pray in every growth group. We have kind of a formula of praying for our own needs as well as the names of other people who are not yet at our church. It's habitual. When we regularly confess our sin to God, we see the joy of transformation in it. Would you, would you pray with me?